Well, it's just a, a pleasure and a privilege to be with you. Thank you. Uh, Gloria and I just love Pastor Van and Janet and deeply, deeply respect them. It's exciting to see what God has done and is doing in this place, to feel the vibrancy of your worship together, wonderful music. Thank you for letting me be here. As children, many of us grew up with nursery rhymes and jingles. For example, if I said one, two, some of you would say, ah, three, four, you're good. One more, five, six, pick up sticks. That's what we want to talk about today, picking up sticks. It's a rather simple activity, isn't it? But when the Apostle Paul, Acts chapter 28, picked up sticks on the beach of the island of Malta in the Mediterranean Sea, it was a most revealing activity that changed many lives and impacted generations of people afterward. I invite you to open your Bible to Acts chapter 28 if you brought it, or perhaps your Bible app on your device. And uh, we'll look at that in just a few moments, learn some important lessons about what it means to follow Jesus and how to build Jesus' church. A little bit of background. Paul, one of the first and greatest missionaries, had been in Jerusalem preaching about Jesus, his life, his love, his miracles, his death, his resurrection. And then he was, he was beaten by a mob, uh, arrested, imprisoned for several years, underwent four unjust trials before the Jewish Sanhedrin, governors Felix and Festus and King Agrippa. Then he appealed to Caesar, put on a boatload of criminals across the Mediterranean Sea to stand in front of the Emperor Caesar. That's like appealing to the Supreme Court of the United States. It's the end of the line. That's as far as you can go. Well, Paul was put on a ship loaded with cargo and criminals. And they were bound for trial in Rome, where if found guilty, they would be prisoned in a miserable prison. They would be beheaded or die in the arena or crucified by a highway in Rome. Not a very pleasant prospect for that boatload of felons. This was uh, not a Mediterranean cruise that they were on. And on the way across the Mediterranean Sea, they... Uh, encountered a violent, raging, two-week, hurricane-force storm. It drove them like a cork, 500 miles off course in the Mediterranean Sea. It was called the Northeaster. And the ship was ultimately shipwrecked on an inhabited island. You can put a little map up, you can see how the ship was blown away from the normal course of sticking by the shore, and instead was blown like a, like a kite in a tornado, 500 miles off course, and finally shipwrecked on that inhabited island. Let's read from chapter 27, just the end of the chapter, to kind of pick up the story. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow stuck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest they should swim away and escape. I always have wondered, where are they going to go? But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first, make for the land, and the rest on planks or pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. Imagine, 
276 people on that boat, and they all got to shore safely. Nobody drowned. It was a miracle. Well, that was what God had promised, and God always keeps his promises. Now, God doesn't always promise to rescue us from evil, does he? Christians die in hurricanes and earthquakes and mass murders. God has promised he'll always be with us and help us in suffering. But in this case, God had promised that they'd all get safely to shore, and God always keeps his promises. Now let's pick up the story in Acts chapter 28 and look first at the compassion by the islanders. Verse 1. After we were brought safely through, we then learned that the island was called Malta. The native people showed us unusual kindness. For they kindled a fire and welcomed us all because it had begun to rain and was cold. Dr. Luke, the beloved physician who wrote this book, uses a fascinating word that in your ESV is translated the, the native people. The word that he used in the Greek was the word barbarous. We get an English word from that. What do you think it is? Barbarian. Ah. Now, I don't know what you think about when we hear the word barbarian, but maybe you think of someone who is uncivilized or primitive or maybe even a dangerous savage. But that wasn't the case here. The snooty Greeks called everybody a barbarian who wasn't Greek. They didn't have the Greek culture. They didn't speak the Greek language. And so they were barbarians, probably because when they talked, it kind of sounded like meaningless syllables, bar, 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 because it wasn't Greek. So they called them barbarians. Likelihood, it was a bit of a racist and demeaning term, the way the Greeks used it. But Luke calls attention to the unusual kindness of these barbarians. Barbarians? Kindness? Sounds a little oxymoronish, doesn't it? What was it about what these native people, these barbarians did, that was unusual kindness? Well, I think, first of all, it was unusual because of the identity of the crowd. Who were these shipwrecked people who crawled out of the sea onto the shore of Malta? Well, first of all, there were Roman soldiers, never very popular outside the city of Rome. They were the conquerors. They were oppressors. It would be like if North Korea conquered the United States and the streets of Shenandoah Junction were, were filled with North Korean soldiers. How would you feel about that? No, that's how they felt about the Romans. And then on this boat were rough sailors, you know, whose reputation was for coming to port, getting drunk, causing trouble, using people, and moving on. And then there were a bunch of escaped convicts. Uh, they were probably looking at them and wondering, what was their crime? Are they safe? But in spite of the identity of the crowd, these native people showed them unusual kindness. So it was unusual because of their identity. Their kindness was also unusual because of the adversity of the circumstances. It had begun to rain, and it was cold. It was a miserable day. You know, it's an awful lot easier to be kind if it doesn't inconvenience you. But these people had to leave the comforts of their home, their home and go out into this horrible storm, this horrible weather, down on the beach uh, to take care of them. It was pouring rain, for goodness sake. This was unusual kindness. It reminds me that sometimes kindness costs. Sometimes if you want to be kind, it takes sacrifice. 
But their kindness was also unusual because of the infidelity, the unbelief of the citizens. Now, God's people throughout the Scripture, Old Testament, New Testament, are commanded to be kind, to show hospitality, right? I mean, that was a very high value in the Old Testament. And Jesus said, showing hospitality to strangers is a test of whether your faith is real or you're a fraud. Remember, Matthew 25, if you don't feed the hungry, clothe the naked, you know, take care of the sick, welcome strangers, you're going to hell. What? Yeah, check it out, Matthew 25. Not that you get saved that way, but that's, if you're really saved, that's how it shows. I mean, hospitality is a key value for Christians, for all of God's people. But these weren't Christians. They didn't believe in Jesus. They didn't have the scriptures. And so the kindness that these unbelieving people showed was unusual. Isn't it tragic that sometimes non-Christians are more kind than Christians? We stopped on our way down at a mall in Pittsburgh. My wife had looked up and saw that there was a store there that she had a gift card to, and that store is not in Muskegon, so you know how this goes. So... uh, I dropped her at the door. She said, you don't have to go in. And I sat in the car, kind of reviewing my sermon. And I was charging up our devices, and I opened the windows, you know. And, and, uh, and then it started to rain a little bit, so I closed the windows. And then it was too hot, so I turned the car on. And you know, dead battery. Oh, my goodness. So I get out of the car. I put the hood up, you know, universal symbol. Dug my jumper cables out of the trunk, opened it up so everybody could see what it was, kind of draped them over the trunk so whatever side of the parking lot you were on, you could see hood up, you know, jumper cables, nothing was happening. So I found three different men that I talked to, talked to three different women, nothing. And so I had my cell phone out and I was calling up my insurance company in Michigan to see if they could, you know, but they said, no problem, we can trace your phone. Doesn't that make you feel really good? We can find you, don't worry. So while I'm talking, this real fancy little sports car, foreign sports car, comes wheeling in right across in front, and out jumps this kind of young, attractive woman, very nicely dressed, and she says, do you need help? you need a jump? So I said, wow, that's really kind. Never mind, don't need you. And, uh, you know, hooked up the jumper cables, and the car started right up. And so, you know, I want to find a way to Jesus in this next conversation. So I say, you know, thank you so much. That was just so kind. You you won't believe this. I was just sitting in my car going over a sermon for tomorrow, and I'm going to talk about how people are supposed to be kind. She said, I'm an atheist. (laughs) Isn't it tragic how sometimes people who aren't Christians are more kind than believers are? I don't have time to tell you where the rest of that conversation went. But you know what? Christians should be the kindest people in town. You shouldn't have to go to a bar to find friendly people who don't judge you and accept you. That ought to be what it's like a church. Oh, my goodness. The church ought to be the most welcoming place in the county. Right? But the only way that can happen is if the people in the church are the kindest people in the county. People like these barbarians who intentionally got involved, put themselves out, left their comfort zones, and made significant personal sacrifices so that they could show unusual kindness to people in need. 
You know what? There aren't many things more ugly than a mean Christian. I was talking to somebody about a church in Muskegon uh, where a friend of mine is a pastor. And when I said it, I said, oh, we live right down the street from that church. You know what? There's somebody in our block who goes to that church. They're the meanest person in the neighborhood. Where do you go from there? You know, share Jesus? When the person they know from the Baptist church down the road is the meanest guy on the block? Wow. And tragically, for some people, Christians have the reputation of being selfish, negative, mean-spirited, cantankerous, judgmental, racist, sexist, homophobic, know-it-alls. And the tragedy is probably everybody in this room knows a Christian who deserves that reputation. Isn't that tragic? Wow. Christians ought to be the kindest people in town and the church ought to be the most welcoming place in the community. Like these barbarians. <laughs> they saw needs and they sacrificed to meet them. And what these shipwrecked people really needed was a, a place to get warm and dry. So the barbarians built a fire down on the shore. Now this was no little campfire, you know, that you roast hot dogs and marshmallows and make s'mores around. There were 276 people who needed to get warm and no little fire. And so they built this mammoth fire on the beach so that 276 people could cozy up and get warm. Wow, the compassion by the islanders. But let's move on to the story and look at the concern by the apostle. Verse 3 tells us that Paul gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire. He gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire. Now there are three things here that, that show Paul's concern. The first was his activity. He picked up sticks to throw on the fire. If you think about it, this was an awfully discouraging, depressing situation. I mean, here was Paul. All he'd been doing was trying to serve God, tell people about Jesus. And what happens? A mob almost beats him to death. He gets arrested, accused of being a terrorist, you know, thrown in jail, unjust trials, shipped off to Rome with a cargo load of criminals. You know, I think if I'd have been Paul, I'd have squatted down in the sand and sulked. Had me a good old pity party. Poor me. Licked my wounds. And what a depressing situation this was. But not Paul. Instead of brooding or whining or giving in to his feelings or letting his emotions control him, Paul sized up the situation and got busy doing what he could to make it better and noticed that his activity was directed towards serving other people, ministering to their needs. You know, all through this story, we, see some, we, we, we can pick up some leadership Lessons. Uh, what, what, what makes a great leader? I'm not necessarily talking about somebody, you know, up front running a business, but, but a great leader. You, know, you notice that Paul refused to be controlled by his feelings. And he focused on solutions, not problems. And he put the well-being of others ahead of himself. What a great leader. Wish I could take time to talk about that. You know what? Ministering to other people's needs is also a great antidote to depression and discouragement. And I don't mean to minimize depression. That can be a horrible dark pit. And, and sometimes there, there are chemical issues. And, and you know, but, but sometimes 
The best thing you can do when you're feeling down is instead of focusing on yourself and how you feel, is to look for somebody who has a need and get busy trying to meet their needs. Well, the concern of the apostle was shown first by his activity, but secondly by his humility. There's nothing really impressive about picking up sticks, right? Do you know what that guy did? He picked up sticks! Not a really big deal. But apparently Paul didn't think he was too important to do a menial, dirty task like picking up sticks on a wet, cold beach. He could have said, don't you know who I am? I'm Paul, the great apostle. Yeah. Missionary, statesman, planter of churches. I'm going to write 13 books in the Bible. I'm a philosopher, world traveler, theologian. And you want me to pick up sticks? Get my hands dirty? Not much dignity in that. But he didn't. He just got busy picking up sticks and throwing them in the fire. You know, that reminds me that God's definition of greatness and man's definition of greatness are very different. Man's definition of greatness is somebody who has a lot of people who serve them. God's definition of greatness is somebody who serves a lot of people. Man's definition of greatness is somebody who does big important things. But God's definition of greatness is somebody who's willing to do little insignificant things. Man's definition of greatness is an executive sitting behind a mahogany desk giving orders to lots of people who do his will. But God's definition of greatness is somebody who is a servant on their knees washing other people's feet. See, where did Paul learn this stuff anyway? He learned it from Jesus. The God-man who in John chapter 13 got down on his knees in front of his disciples, even Judas, and washed their feet. And he said, if I'm your Lord and Master, and I have washed your feet, then I've given you an example of what you should do. And Jesus said in the Gospel of Mark, if you want to be great, then you've got to become last. If you want to be first, you've got to become the servant of all. Because even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give himself a ransom for all. That's where Paul got this from Jesus. Well, can't you take this servant thing a little bit too far? I mean, you can get extreme, can't you, in this? You know, Jesus got quite extreme with it. He took it all the way to the cross. I guess once I've been there, maybe I can complain, huh? Paul's concern was not only revealed by his activity and his humility, but also by his responsibility. Someone else had started that great big fire, so these people get warm and dry. But what happens if a fire is just let go? What happens if people don't keep throwing sticks on the fire? What happens? It goes out. I mean, if the fire is going to keep going, somebody's got to keep it going. Somebody's got to pick up sticks. I don't think anybody asked Paul, would you be so kind as to... I don't think anybody said, give you $10 a you know, handful. I, 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 Paul could have said, well, you know what? Somebody else will do that. That's somebody else's job. Not on my job description. It's not, on my, not my responsibility. He could have said, you know what? No, no one will notice if I do that. There's not much glory in picking up sticks. I'll wait till Channel 13 gets here with the cameras, and then I'll pick up a few sticks. Won't that be a great PR piece? 
He could have said, you know what, I didn't start the fire, and I don't even like the way they stacked the sticks. But he didn't. He just saw what needed to be done, and he did it. Responsibility. He accepted personal responsibility for keeping the fire going. Now, here's some more leadership lessons, right? A leader sees what needs to be done, takes the initiative for doing it, assumes personal responsibility for getting the job done no matter what anybody else does. Some people can look at work all day and never see it. Don't point now. You know anybody like that? Some people will do what you tell them to do, what you order them to do, what you inspect what they do, but that's all. But not Paul. He took personal responsibility and initiative to keep the fire going. Now, you know what? I don't think this was an isolated incident in the life of Paul. I don't think he picked up sticks in a time of crisis for the first time. I think this was just the way Paul was. This is the way he lived. You know what? It's a way of love. Jesus said, do for others what you want others to do for you. Well, if you love other people, you know the fire's got to be fed to keep it going. I think Paul's whole life was spent picking up sticks. I mean, I think he was the kind of guy that if he was leaving a room and, and the lights were on, he turned the lights out. He just saw it needed to be done. I mean, done taking a shower, you don't throw the towel on the floor, you fold it and hang it on the, on the rack or put it in the hamper. What, what, you know what I'm saying. You know, you see a piece of trash on the floor, you, you stop and pick it up and throw it away. You're picking up sticks. You, you're not saying, well, somebody else will do it, not my job. You just say, you know what? If I'm going to live a life of love, then I care about things, I care about other people, and I don't have to be asked or told, I'm just going to pick up sticks. It's, that's... You see somebody sitting all by themselves, you say, I better go sit with them. You see somebody carrying something heavy, you say, can I help you? It's a way of life. That's the way Paul lived. He just took responsibility. Oh my goodness. He wasn't content to warm himself at a fire to which he had contributed nothing. May God give Fellowship Bible Church members like that. And here's where I'm going to take a little liberty with this passage. This would not pass muster in a hermeneutics class, but we're not there. Uh, this is application, not interpretation, okay? I'm going to just kind of turn the story into a parable, allegorize it a bit, kind of make it a giant metaphor. 26 years ago, a handful of people met in a stone church because they felt that this area had a lot of shipwrecked souls who needed somebody to build a gospel fire where they could come and see the light of truth and the warmth of Jesus' love. And so that little handful of people started a fire. Wow. For 26 years, the fire's been burning brighter and brighter. Isn't it exciting to see this gospel fire and what God is doing? But you know what? There's always a danger because the fire can go out if there aren't enough people picking up sticks to keep the fire going. To keep the fire going in any church requires a lot of people. You know, I, I looked at your bulletin. I, I look around when I come in. I'm going to guess that you have to have 100 or 150 people picking up sticks every Sunday just to make this happen. That'd be right. Some of them are visible. I mean, you see the musicians and... 
Some of them are invisible. You never see them. They were here last night setting things up. They mowed the lawn this week. I mean, they made the coffee before you got here. They're back in the nursery changing your kid's messy diaper. I mean, they're running the sound back here. Uh, you know, just Pastor Van picked me up, brought me to church at 3 o'clock this morning. Had to get here early, and some of you are already here. I'm lying. <laughs> no, 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 no. But we did get here pretty early, and there were already a bunch of people here picking up sticks. And you know what? There's all kinds of sticks that need to be picked up at Fellowship Bible Church. There are sticks that are just right for you. Some of them are visible. Some of them are behind-the-scenes kind of stuff that nobody will ever notice except Jesus. He always does. But if the fire is going to keep burning, you've got to have people who take their chainsaw and cut wood. <laughs> you've got to have people who will welcome others. You've got to have people who are always looking for somebody who's alone, reaching out. You've got to have people who call on people in the hospital. I mean, on and on it goes. But it's not just picking up sticks in the church. If this church is going to thrive, you've got to be picking up sticks in the community too. Because it's when you're out there feeding the hungry, clothing the naked, visiting uh, the people in jail, taking care of the sick, serving on the school board, teaching kids, you know, just out in the community, meeting needs, picking up sticks. That's what gets the gospel to people. And if this fire is going to keep burning brightly, then it's going to take an awful lot of people, you, to keep picking up sticks to keep this fire going. Please listen. Older, stronger, bigger churches than this one have died. They've died. There are empty church buildings all over America and more closing. You know why? People stop picking up sticks. That's what happened. And if you stop picking up sticks, the fire will go out. Oh, may God, at this anniversary, just kind of renew the commitment of this congregation. We've got to keep this gospel fire burning. You have a choice, folks. You can choose to let the fire go out. All it takes is for enough people to stop picking up sticks. Or you can choose to just maintain the fire as is. You've got a good thing going here, you know. Let's just kind of keep it like this, not too much change. Or you can choose to build the fire up, invite new people to find warmth and love and hope around it. Or you can help to start or restart new fires in new places around the community, around the world, so that more people can come to the light and truth of the gospel. Now, we've seen the compassion by the islanders and the concern by the apostle. Quickly, let's move on a little bit further in the story and see the calamity from the snake. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks, verse 3, and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hands. Now, Paul's just out there in the rain and the cold, and he's, you know, he's kind of picking up a bundle of sticks to take, and he, and, and he gets some sticks. He probably had a bigger load than this. And he's going to go throw them in the fire. Now, you remember how big that fire was we put in the picture? You don't just kind of walk up there and throw them on. I mean, this fire would singe your backside in a minute. So Paul's kind of backing up to the fire, and he gets as close as he can until he feels like his clothes are actually going to burst into flame, and then he's already to throw the sticks and... He didn't realize that one of those sticks wasn't a stick. 
And when the snake on the stick felt the heat, he said, I'm not going there. And he sunk his fangs into Paul's hand. And he's standing there watching as the blood and the venom begins to drip down the snake and make little droplets in the, in the sand. You know what? If you uh, pick up sticks, then sometimes you're going to get bitten. Uh, down through the years, some of you stick picker-uppers have probably been bitten a number of times. I know in some churches people have gotten bitten by a pastor or a deacon or an elder. And I can guarantee that pastors have got fang marks all over them from being bitten. Uh, the attacks often come when you least expect them, when you least deserve them, when you least are expecting them. And sometimes those snake bites come from people that you've invested your heart and soul and blood and sweat and tears in. And they turn around and bite you. And I'm telling you, if you pick up sticks, Jesus said, if they mistreated me, they'll mistreat you. I mean, this is just an occupational hazard. If you're going to pick up sticks, you've got to be ready. Now let's look next in the story at the conclusion by the onlookers. Verse 4 says, When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt, no doubt this man is a murderer. Though he's escaped the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. They all agreed. He is a murderer. Now you got to give it to these barbarians. They had a great sense of justice. They figure the guy may have escaped from the sea, didn't drown. But you know what? Karma gets you, you know, what goes around comes around. You know, he may have escaped the sea, but justice sooner or later catches up with you. And so look at that. That snake got him. He's a murderer. Count on it. Many years ago, the first church I pastored, Kristen, where'd you go? It was in Perry. And I'd walk downtown to the post office to pick up the mail, and I came back into the office, and Dolores... If you remember, Dolores Pope was sitting there, the secretary. And I said, Dolores, it's disgusting. She didn't usually hear me talk that way. She said, Pastor, what's disgusting? I saw Mrs. So-and-so down by the post office, and she was so drunk, she could hardly walk straight. You didn't know pastors ever talked like that, did you? <laughs> and Dolores said very sweetly, <laughs> She said, Pastor, well, you didn't know that Mrs. So-and-so had a stroke and she's partly paralyzed. <laughs> oh. I had a little problem of premature judgment. Like the barbarians. He's a murderer. You see, it's awfully easy to judge or condemn someone when you don't know the whole story. How quickly we are how quick we are sometimes to hear something bad about someone and we just believe it. Don't check it out, don't give them the benefit of the doubt. Don't go to them and say, I heard something about you, it's probably not true, but I just I wanted to come to and hear from you. Many times people just hear something like that and they pass it on and it gets legs. Oh my goodness, I wish I had time to stop and talk more about that. Unfortunately, there are too many Christians who are a lot more likely to pick up stones to throw them at you than to pick up sticks and help you. 
I do know what it's like to be lied about and slandered. I know what it's like to have people quickly believe wild falsehoods about you. And what you really wish is that people would come to you and say, hey, I heard this and I just, I just, I want to come to you and if you need help, I'll help you. But if it's not true, I want to know so I can defend you. But so often the tragedy is that people just listen and believe. So what did Paul do? Start yelling, liar, liar, pants on fire. <laughs> no. He just kept on, shook a snake off from the fire and kept picking up sticks. <laughs> you know, some more leadership lessons here. Paul wasn't easily hurt. If you're going to serve God, you've got to have thick skin and a tender heart. He was too busy picking up sticks to worry about stuff beyond his control. He didn't answer his critics. He just let God vindicate him in his time. And I think Paul remembered God's promise. Way back in Jerusalem, God had said, Paul, you are going to bear witness to Caesar in Rome. Paul knew he couldn't die on a beach in Malta because God promised he was going to witness to Caesar. So when you're facing a bad time, it's awfully good if you know and believe God's promises. Plagues and deaths around me fly till he bids I cannot die. Not a single dart can hit till the God of love sees fit. Look what happened next. Verse 5, he shook off the creature into the fire, suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But when he waited a long time, saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and they said that he was a god. People kept watching Paul. They get their kids and say, now watch, any minute now, he's going to turn white, then red, then blue, and he's going to swell up, and then he'll fall down and die. Just watch now, watch. <laughs> but it didn't happen. He just kept picking up sticks, and, and they changed their mind, and they said, he's not a murderer, he's a god. They saw something in Paul when he was suffering that could only be explained by the supernatural. You know how we respond to suffering is one of the most powerful witnesses of the reality of our faith in Christ. In fact, our suffering often becomes the platform of witness. Our suffering opens doors and connects us to people we'd have never met in any other way. And that brings me to the last point of my sermon, the conception of a church. Now in the neighborhood of that place, verse 7, were lands belonging to the chief man, the bigwig of the island named Publius who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. It happened that the father of Publius lay sick with a fever and dysentery. Paul visited him, prayed, putting his hands on him, healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people in the island who had diseases also came and were cured. They also honored us greatly, and when we were about to sail, they put, us on, put on board whatever we needed. You see, as a result of the shipwreck and the snake bite, Paul got into the hearts of the people and into the home of Publius the bigwig, and he laid hands on him by God's power. Publius's father was healed. And a long tradition tells us that the first convert on Malta was Publius. And he became the first pastor of the church, Bishop Publius of Malta. And there's an unbroken presence of Christianity on the island of Malta to this day as a result of picking up sticks on the shore. So you never know what little act of kindness God will use in an incredible way. Paul didn't think, if I pick up sticks, something really big is going to happen. No, he just saw what needed to be done, and he did it. 
He lived that lifestyle of love that I talked to you about earlier. Can I remind you, 26 years this fire's been burning, but now it's up to you. Remember the choices you have? Here they are. You can choose to let the fire go out. All you have to do is do nothing. That's all you have to do. Or you can choose to maintain the fire like it is. Hopefully everybody keep picking up the sticks they're getting now. Or, but they're going to die off, by the way. Or you can build the fire up. More and more people say, I'm going to pick up sticks, keep this gospel firing. And then you can even go beyond here and help to start new fires or restart fires that have gone out. You have a choice. And my question to you as I close is, what are you going to do? What are the sticks that God is calling you to pick up this week and beyond? Father, thank you for all the people who picked up sticks here 26 years ago and down through the years. I pray that we will be more and more like Jesus. And by our love, this fire will burn brightly until you come back and call us home. I pray that every person in this room will become a stick picker-upper for the rest of their lives. In Jesus' name, amen.